This episode of Code Story is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder was founded by LeBron James and Arnold Schwarzenegger to change the way supplements are made. They worked with the top scientists to formulate a line of clean performance products. Unlike other supplements, every batch is tested by a third party to verify the highest standards for quality and safety. We all know what a tremendous athlete LeBron is, and Arnold, no explanation needed. If they back it, you know it's got to be good. Ladder's goal is to help you unlock your best in any situation. Right now, that means access to special offers and expert advice from their community. Use code BETTEREVERYDAY, all one word, all caps, for 30% off everything site-wide at ladder.sport. That's BETTEREVERYDAY, all caps, all one word, for 30% off at ladder.sport. And that came with a greater deal of overhead than I probably even would have expected when I wrote the business plan back in 2016. But now that we've made it through that transition and that focus, and we are now a very product-led organization, I can't look back and say I would do it any differently. I don't think we'd have the product and the momentum in the community that we have now without that. But I do know that it maybe would have been easier to just stay very product-focused and continue to give ourselves permission to throw away early iterations. And I think that's what helps companies um, and startups to iterate into market without carrying a ton of technical debt behind them. My name is Kyle Campbell. I'm founder and CEO of CTO.ai. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today, how Kyle Campbell set out to make DevOps easier by integrating automation where development happens. All this and more on Code Story. Kyle Campbell is a native Canadian and high school dropout. Growing up in Nova Scotia, he's been working with technology since he was eight years old learning computers, building websites, and even starting an online record label. A husband and a dad, he loves the outdoors, camping and motorbikes, and frequently hits the trails with a group of tight-knit campers. After moving into entrepreneurship post-high school, he worked his way up through the ranks of several companies in the Vancouver area and founded his own companies along the way, one of which got acquired by Zillow. Post that, Kyle started to consider the current complexity of the infrastructure and DevOps landscape cloud, Kubernetes, containers, etc. So he set out with the mission to make DevOps successful, easy to use, and bring developer tools to where development happens by enabling developer shortcuts. This is the creation story of CTO.ai. We had a very interesting and unique path to product in market as we have now. For the first couple of years of the business, we've decided to not focus on technology. As a solo founder and also somebody who's been so technology focused, I knew that I could go out and raise money off my prior success and maybe jump into a product and, and play that whole game. But I wanted to take a more sustainable path. So we bootstrapped the business and really focused on professional services early. We provided DevOps as a service. And what that meant is we both were able to align with the customer pain points and some of these companies that I had been talking to, to understand what were the deep challenges that they were having within the developer experience. But we were also able to then profitably start testing our ideas, both with those customers and internally. So we ended up building a lot of early concepts that weren't even what I would consider a product. We were building them to suit the customer pain points. 
And over about a year, a year and a half, we started to see this pattern emerging. And that's where we kind of came to the idea of the ops platform and iterated it into market and transitioned the business to focus primarily on a platform strategy. So the early iterations of the MVP were very much designed to be one-time use and things that we were very happy and easy to throw away. We started out focused on CLIs and building out different CLIs for different user experiences and different problems that these customers wanted to solve within their developer tools. And because it was a CLI, it was really inexpensive to build, but we could also create a really good feedback loop with our team and our customer. And uh, that led us to ultimately understand that there was a, a set of paradigms that we needed to be able to achieve to really make DevOps accessible. And it went beyond just the idea of, of a good CLI, which is where we brought things to Slack. We eventually reached um, a product that we were very confident in that we had tested with a number of teams. And so we brought the community edition of the OS platform to market last fall after raising some capital from really great investors. And uh, we launched our Slack Ops MVP in Q1, and now we're about to um, launch a new MVP around delivery metrics that we're really excited about as well. So, tell me about the a little bit more about the decisions and trade offs you had to make on that early MVP. So, you know, when you're building an MVP, you got to decide what you can build now, what can you build later. Dig into that a little more and how you coped with those decisions. Did they surprise you later? Did technical debt ever kind of create any problems? Uh, tell me a little more about that. I think those things are always true. And as somebody who's been building these businesses that are very technical for a long time, I'm pretty desensitized to those compromises. But I think the compromise that was really clear that we were making based on our strategy, which is maybe counterintuitive to how most technology founders would approach this, is we focused on profitability and sales and we sold into to customer pain points ahead of building product. That meant we were generating eight figures in revenue last year. As a result of that, we had some significant responsibilities and expectations with our customers. And so as we were building products and building concepts, we really had to balance those two things. We had to make sure that we were separating IP concerns because you know our customers were expecting us to deliver clear IP to them and that it was a commitment we'd made and a commitment that we were honoring. We also had to then be able to figure out how we could test these different tools and build these different concepts within our own right. So a lot of the challenges were less about the technology and probably more about how we approached business operations. When it came to the technology and the product, we kept things very, very thin to avoid a lot of technical debt. And we also gave ourselves a lot of permission to throw away code that we'd written. I think that's something that's really challenging for most individual contributors and most team members. And so it's something I was completely and, and constantly um, trying to evangelize is okay. But we probably threw away four to five different versions of what we built. And every single time, we got stronger and better because we gave ourselves permission to throw away the code base. I think that's something that most companies and most teams that I've seen don't do often enough. And then it leads them to some really crippling technical debt or some really crippling compromises. For us, I think we took that approach very consciously on the product and technology side, having been through this a number of times in the past. But what was a really big learning experience was how we approached the business operations and the go-to-market strategy and how we were sort of managing a duality in our business model. And that came with a greater deal of overhead than I probably even would have expected when I wrote the business plan back in 2016. But now that we've made it through that transition and that focus, and we are now a very product-led organization, 
I can't look back and say I would do it any differently. I don't think we'd have the product and the momentum in the community that we have now without that. But I do know that it maybe would have been easier to just stay very product focused and continue to give ourselves permission to throw away early iterations. And I think that's what helps companies um, and startups to iterate into market without carrying a ton of technical debt behind them. I love that. I love the, you know, what you said about throwing away code, giving permission to throw away things that you've built that may have been right for the time, but no longer work essentially for what you're trying to do moving forward. I think that is a huge, it is difficult for individual contributors and it's difficult for engineers to throw away their babies, so to speak, but it's really critical for the advancement of a product to feel enabled and free to scrap something and start over. It's not easy. And, and I talk about this a lot on Twitter and different areas. I mean, it's probably the one area where I try to lean into thought leadership. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions, right? Generally, an engineer comes to their profession with the expectation that they know how to build it right. Like somebody, you know, as a business owner, I'm expect, I expect you to know how to build it right. Or that's at least the perception that these individual contributors will often have. And what's unintuitive for them is in an early stage startup, my perspective is maybe more like we don't know how to build it right. We're completely wrong. And over some amount of time, we should try to be right. And you won't know how to build it right until you failed a couple times. That's really ingrained in my personality because of how I came up you know, as somebody who failed their way to where I'm at for 20 years, and that's literally the overnight success that I, you know, I I have a talk about that's on YouTube. It's just something that I I maybe take for granted sometimes. So I try to stop and definitely normalize that for people because you're right, it's super important. And it's, it's hard if people haven't spent a lot of time in an early stage startup to accept that. Absolutely. That's awesome. So how did you progress the product from the early days and how did you go about building your roadmap and deciding what's the next most important thing to build on top of keeping it thin, you know, a tight core product? What did you, how did you decide to what to build next? Even though we've been in business for three years, it's still pretty early days for us on the product and platform side. We're three quarters into market, you know, with about two years of iterating and testing and concepting before that. We really focused on trying to figure out how could we best influence the developer experience. And, and what was really challenging about this is it's not necessarily as an intuitive focus as you would think. The developer experience is fragmented across thousands of different tools, and any single one of them can be perceived as a competitor or a conflict with what you're trying to build. So we try to stay really focused on, is this something that we think will provide the developer a better experience. And we sort of have two pillars that we evaluated. The first is a really good developer experience, as I said, but the second is how can we then source information, data, context, delivery metrics, or DORA metrics, as they're called sometimes in the industry. And how can we feed, create that feedback loop to the developer, the team, and the business so that they have a strong degree of context about how they're working. And that was sort of how we set up the guiding principles. I really take an opinionated view as the founder of Product Roadmap Early. I do believe in a very customer-centric approach to, to Product Roadmap, but I think it can be really challenging if you do that too early. There's a bit of a balance and I think a tipping point in which the information that you're getting from customers can invalidate 
the intuition that a product founder may have, especially after 20 years in a particular industry. Now, there's also biases that you have to check and you have to be really careful about that. But the way we approached it was I wrote out a very, what I would call a very detailed, but I guess it's more on a medium level of detailed roadmap where I just will iterate, you know, semantic versioning style from 0.1 through to 1.0. And I'll lay out generally milestones on the path to get there. The analogy that we would sometimes use is, look, we're all going on a road trip to get trip together and we know that we're gonna have to stop for gas along the way, but here's the checkpoints where we're gonna stop and sleep. And that gives people some level of sanity along a long journey, especially if you're you know, driving for days, weeks, you know, months, or even years, uh, to have a bit of context and see the forest through the trees. So what I try to do is set an opinionated view early that is you know, relatively medium context, which leaves a lot of area for individual contributors to paint in the level of detail as they take tasks into an implementation view, sprint to sprint. And then what I do is I look for a tipping point where the context and the information that's coming back from users is more valuable or more validating than what I think my opinion is. I'm a generally opinionated person. I like to say, you know, the old, you know, strong opinions loosely held. And one of the things that I, um, I say to the team is a quote from, uh, I believe it's Jim Barksdale from Netscape is, um, you know, if you want to talk about opinions, let's use mine, but otherwise let's use data. And, you know, I'm really looking for getting to a tipping point of an opinionated view of the world, which users can align with, which at that point you switch gears from saying, look, here's my roadmap to really just letting the customers tell you what your roadmap should be. And then what we try to do is use something called um, an ice score, or it's also called a rice score when you have a much larger user base. And the idea of, a, of an ice score is um, impact plus confidence divided by effort. So if you take the impact plus the confidence of your proposed feature, and you divide that by the effort that it's estimated to accomplish that, you ultimately end up with a really good prioritization framework for what is your best work. And one of our core values is that we prioritize our best work. And so a framework like this is important, I think, to helping you prioritize what you should do. And as you start to include users into this, you also then have the concept of reach, which is how many users will this impact? Is you know, if one in 10 users say that this is a good feature, then my reach is not as high as if 10 out of 10 say it. And so I think if you look at it through that lens, that's where you start to hit this tipping point where the data can invalidate the opinion. But in an early, early stage product, you need to have somebody opinionated. You know, it's typically the founder who's the one who's setting expectations and saying, look, this is what I see and what I've, I've understood from being in this market. And here's how we want to approach it. This episode is sponsored by SaveTheChildren.org. Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. In the United States and around the world, they work every day to give children a healthy start in life, the opportunity to learn, and protection from harm. They deliver lasting results for millions of children, including those hardest to reach, and do whatever it takes for children, every day. Right now, the coronavirus is the biggest global health crisis of our lifetime. It threatens children in every way. COVID-19 has already left many children without caregivers, out of school, and exposed to violence and exploitation. With your support, SaveTheChildren.org can help children in unsafe households and help support distance learning in the face of school closures. Here are some of the ways your support can make a difference. For just $5, you can buy a baby's first book, providing comfort and inspiring a lifelong love of learning. For 10 bucks, you can nourish an out-of-school child in need for one-day breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
For $35, you can provide educational toys and activities to engage eager out-of-school learners. And for 50 bucks, you can deliver essentials that keep kids learning while out of school, like books, activities, and supplies. Go to savethechildren.org slash savekids today or www.savethechildren.org slash savekids to make a difference. This message is brought to you by Atomic Child. Do you love the outdoors? Do you wish you had a way to keep it with you throughout your week? Atomic Child is an artist-run brand that is inspired by nature. They capture the great outdoors through unique designs, and their designs can be found on stickers, blankets, water bottles, mugs, pins, patches, and more at AtomicChild.com. Need nature-based art in your life? Look no further. Atomic Child has the gear for you because they bring nature to you. Me personally, I'm eyeing a new coffee mug or hat with a sweet Colorado design on it. You can bet I'll be ordering some sweet nature-based clothing and accessories right here from Atomic Child. Check out their store and art prints at AtomicChild.com. That's AtomicChild.com. There's so much I love in that. I love the ice score. I've heard it in different terms before, but I love the way you've broken it down. Ice sounds way cooler than the ones I've heard before. (laughs) Take Um, credit for that one. And then, (laughs) sure, sure. But it's still really cool. And then I also feel the surfacing of your outdoor loves there and how, you know, you have this predetermined plan or places where you're going to sleep, like when you're on a road trip. (laughs) I feel your motorbike stuff coming out there and your camping stuff coming out there. Um, But it makes so much sense. Like it's, we're going to build this thing and then we're going to get to this point and we're going to rest and we're going to watch and we're going to observe and we're going to take notes and we're going to listen. And it's super valuable. So as a founder and CEO, um, one of the things I've had developed from, you know, CTO prior, and as I moved into CEO position, the number one skill set I've had to develop is storytelling. And I've always been a good storyteller, but I tend to use a lot of analogies. So, you know, this is just one more of the, you know, many analogies that I'll use to get a, a point across sometimes. That's fantastic. I love it. Tell me about your team. How did you build your team and what did you look for in the people that you chose to join CTO.ai to indicate that they were the winning horses? This is one of the hardest things about building a company. And sometimes you can get it really right and sometimes you can get it really wrong. And there's the old adages about this, of course, that we all hear. I think hiring is something that you need to really contextualize within the short term, but also within the long term. You need to contextualize it within the strategy, but also within the goals. And we had, as I talked about earlier, sort of a bifurcated business model where we were taking professional services, we were working with professional services, and we were a professional service oriented company for about two years. And as a result, we hired a lot of people who were really skilled at delivering professional services and professional service-based tooling. As a result, what we looked for was also people who had a really good product sense and would be comfortable and adaptable in a product environment because the expectation, the business plan was eventually to to transition to a product-led business model. This is something that's really, really challenging because I think it's hard to prioritize both what you need in the moment, but also what you need in the long term when you have this sort of bifurcated business model. Most businesses, I would say, are set up more simply where there is, you know, just a focus. And with us, now that there is a very clear product focus, we have a very 
different hiring strategy than we did in earlier stages of the business because of that. As a result of that, I thought a lot of time thinking about how do you hire right and how do you hire right at the right time? And there's even some throwbacks to what we were saying about technology. I think it's important that when you're hiring people, you're clear with them about what stage of the business you're hiring them for. I think that's the number one thing that you have to get right, especially even if you're not in a bifurcated scenario, just if you're in a scenario where you are an early stage business, you should expect that the people you hire early will be the people who are gonna be there for the long term. But over the course of the business, if the business is successful, especially in a hyperscale business, you know, the definition of hyperscale is it's growing faster than any of us can even adapt to. But in a hyperscale business, your business should and will outgrow the individuals that you're hiring. So I think there's a few things that are really important that I've learned here. The first is what people say is like, have a really clear sort of strategy for who you're hiring. What are the archetypes and the attributes that you're looking for? And a book like Who, which I recently read, is a really great framework for how to think about this. It's a short read, I encourage everyone to read it. What I prioritize really comes back to the values and virtues of the business, our virtues are um, speed, adaptability, decisiveness, and culture. So I want people who prioritize our culture who emphasize the speed of delivery, meaning prioritizing their best work, not necessarily doing things wrong, but prioritizing their best work, who are decisive and want to debate things with data over who understand, disagree, and commit. And then obviously adaptability because plans change, especially in early stage startups. So that's the archetype I look for. And then what I try to do is make sure that, you know, this is something that I think everyone has to learn, every founder has to learn, is you need to make sure that you hire people in appropriate to where you're at as a business and give them a lot of headroom to grow. So this would mean hiring people in typically at an early stage as a director instead of as a VP or as a senior contributor instead of as a director. And you really have to think about what's the long term in the business and what's the headroom to grow. I think it's something that is really hard to get perfect, but the longer you can keep a team small, well-aligned and cohesive, I think the better and easier it is to hire because it's not always then the founder or the leader who's making those decisions, it's the team who starts to really lean into that. And as soon as your team are the ones who are really setting a clear standard about who are the people that are coming in and joining the team because they know what the standard is and they want to make sure they maintain that standard, I think that's where you start to really get hiring right. It's really hard to hire as a business owner, or even a hiring manager and get it right in a context of one. So I think it's really important that you spend the time not just learning and training yourself on what to look for. And, you know, obviously those are the attributes I'm looking for, but they could be different in a different stage of business. I think the most important thing is once you get past that, figuring out how to train your team to look for those things, because now you have hiring managers who are hiring people and you may or may not be able to meet every single person and you really should as much as possible. So you know, I tried for as long as possible to meet every single person we hired, but it wasn't always, you know, 100% my decision because I, you want to delegate and afford your team the responsibility of hiring their team because that's what accountability really is at the end of the day. I love that. So let's talk about scalability a little bit. You, know, you mentioned you're building the MVP thin to make sure, and as you progressed it, to make sure you had a tight core product that um, you didn't take on a lot, of, a lot of technical debt, but that doesn't necessarily translate to scalability exactly. 
So tell me about that. Was this something you thought of from the very beginning or were you fighting this as you grew? Were there particular points over the past three years that maybe you hit a wall or anything like that? This is a really interesting uh, concept. There's two types of scalability. There's like organizational scalability and, and then there's technology scalability. Within organizational scalability, I think it really comes down to the business model you choose. And, you know, we cho chose a business model early on that didn't scale. Like Paul Graham says, do things that don't scale early. And I think we hit that limit really, really clearly from an organizational scalability. It was really hard to continue to grow the business based on where we thought the the unit economics would take us and the, the amount of hiring and people that needed to come into the business to approach that. But but I, I really knew up front that that wasn't going to scale. And so I wasn't surprised to buy that. And so transitioning the business into a platform like Bottle model was entirely about scalability and unit economics and, and doubling down on the traction that we had seen by taking a top-down approach with working with companies and trying to then cultivate that in what we think of as a bottom-up model through community developers and DevOps enthusiasts who are out there trying to make the world a, a better developer experience. When we think about the product and the technology, you know, I'm very opinionated in the sense of at an early stage, until you get to a clear tipping point of product market fit and are growing, let's say 30% month over month with less than 10% churn, I think you don't have to worry about scalability and you shouldn't worry about scalability. In our case, we had a lot of momentum as we went to market. And also just because we're a, a company who focuses on DevOps and scalability is one of our core attributes as a regard, we actually did focus on it quite early on. Our first few MVPs were, were very much not meant to be scalable and we did so really credibly. But once we got to a place where we, we thought we knew what to build and we could build it right, we did invest the time into making it scalable enough that as our growth happened, we were not going to be spending all of our time duct taping it together. I think this is a really challenging balance. I mean, I think of this as one of the ultimate dichotomies in startup world, especially for founders and CTOs. The natural dichotomy between stability and velocity, I think is, is something that is really important is well managed by a technical founder. I think you have to early on prioritize velocity um, and care less about stability, but over time you need to find out how to get to stability and therefore scalability. I think one of the things that is a silver bullet in that is what I said earlier about giving yourself permission to throw away product. Because if you do that, it's sometimes much easier to build for scale from first principles, knowing what you actually went through, right? If I knew what I, I knew that, if I knew what I knew now then, how would I have built this? And I think that's how I would think about it. I think most businesses and will get to a place where if you give yourself permission to throw away code until you get to a tipping point and then you build for scale, that will be the best way. And that's how we thought about it. It's how we approached it. We just threw away the first number of products and we transitioned the business model really quickly. And I think as a result of that, it set us up in such a place where now we are building for scalability and that's well aligned with our actual growth as a business. Very cool. As you step out on the balcony and look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Wow, that's an incredible question. Brings a lot of imagery. I wouldn't say that I have ever, I step out on any kind of balcony. Rather, I think what I would prefer to do is take <laughs> the stairs. I'm really proud of the team that we've built. I think that's probably the most important thing about any of this. 
there's a quality of endurance and adaptability and just growth in the team that is with me on this journey that I'm really proud of because we've had to put a lot of energy into that. We grew very, very quickly to 60 people and then, you know, made some really big changes recently. And our team's been through a lot and it's been a wild ride. And just to see how dedicated they are and how adaptable they are, but how passionate they are and how willing they are to take initiative and, you know, approach these really challenging problems while knowing that they don't have the answers, nor do I, and we're figuring them out. I think that creates like a, a level of cohesiveness and an interpersonal connection. That's probably the most my most favorite part about building startups. I think that's what I would go with. I, I don't know that I could look at much else and say that it's the, the number one thing I'm proud of. I think if I use the regret minimization, technique and I looked back, you know, at the end of my life, I, I don't ever think it's going to be that I remember the technology I built or any of the code I, I wrote. But I, I definitely, even now looking back at my prior startups, I always remember the people. I always remember the situations, you know, the late nights and the digging in and enduring some challenge that we didn't think we could solve and then coming out the other side with high fives. I mean, that's really, we'll always remember. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of. Love it. That's awesome. Let's flip the script just a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made throughout the process the last three years and how did you and your team respond to it? I guess the one that I'll use is, is a more recent example that's still fresh. And, um, you know, I think it'll require me to be, be a bit vulnerable, but why not? As many businesses struggle through this big change in the market, I mean, so have we. We've made some significant changes in the business to go from about 60 people down to 21 people. And that's probably the hardest thing that I've ever experienced. And, and it was something that was really challenging. And I think one of the reasons in retrospect that this happened was I, as a leader, made a decision to ramp up our team really quickly and did not have the foresight to anticipate what's happened recently with COVID. And as a result, I really had to come back to the team, especially the state team and say, look, here is a very obvious and painful mistake that I've made that's impacted a lot of people. I have to make this decision. And this is a decision that I don't take lightly. And here's why it's being made. And here's full transparency into you know, how we are as a business. And I can't change that now, but what I can make sure I do is I can control how we treat the team who's leaving and how we try to support them. And I want us, you know, my leadership team, I want all of us to put as much energy as we can into supporting them through this this time. And one of the things, I mean, even just going back to your prior question that I'm so proud of is the team who stayed and even our alumni, people who've worked with us over the last couple of years, really rallied around this. And, you know, it was something that I was really proud to see how everybody really leaned into supporting these people. And ultimately that was my mistake. It was something that I made decisions in the business that required change at a time of very clear uncertainty, I guess. And I was just really, really humbled and proud to see how the team we had assembled responded to it, how they rallied around those people, but then also how they realigned their focus towards our mission and our objectives and how as a small team they came together through all of this change 
to really focus on not just taking care of people, but then focusing on product and profits in that order. Um, and you know, it was something that I had. I, I, I had very little. You know, once once these decisions were made, I, there was only taking control over trying to make the best decision in a very difficult circumstance. But having that team behind me who was supporting me, um, you know, and giving me permission to fail in some ways um, was really, really humbling. And, and I don't think I ever want to go through that again. And we're never, you know, that's not something that we're ever want to do again, but it's um, definitely going to be a defining moment of my experience building this company. And it's something that I'm okay with talking about openly because I think there's a lot of people going through tough times right now. And it's important that to some degree we can share our experiences and hope that it, you know, normalizes the fact that everything will be okay in the end. I appreciate you sharing that and your vulnerability. That's a, a great story and something to highlight that you've walked through and your team has walked through. Tell me what the future looks like for CTO.ai and for your team. Our future is very bright. I think one thing that I spent a lot of time doing in the last couple of weeks is really trying to understand where I think the world's going. I think that's one of the jobs of a CEO or any good entrepreneur is to try to think ahead of where is this world going. And I think there's there's one thing that's clear. And then if I pattern recognize that against prior examples in the past, you know, I, I come to a set of conclusions that make me very excited about our future. And this is how I think about it. You know, if I look back at 2001, 2008, there was really big businesses, you know, they call them T-shaped businesses that came out of these downturns. In 2008, the example was, you know, companies like Uber and Airbnb and, and sort of the need for the gig economy and incremental earning opportunities and incremental work. I think this, this change that we're in right now is actually quite different. And the defining factor for me is the move to remote. We set ourselves up as a business and the reason we aligned with you know, Slack as an investor is we really believed that the world was going remote. We didn't anticipate it to go remote you know, in 18 days by a factor of 18 months. But with that move to remote work, we believe that there is a strong need to bring developer tools and developer experiences to the place where communication collaboration happen in Slack. And that's really exciting for us because I think more than ever, the need for developer tools and developer strategies that bring communication collaboration as well as observability to teams to help them work better together is really, really important. So we feel really excited and really fortunate to be on what we think is a big wave. I think any business, need, any good startup has to have a few things and one of them is timing. The other is a great team um, and you know, idea and funding is kind of far down the line after that. So I think the timing is really great for us and we're seeing a huge shift to using Slack as a jump off point for developer experiences, as a jump off point for the DevOps process. And I think that paints a really bright future for where we're going. And we're gonna stay focused on keeping our team, you know, as lean as possible. We're really investing heavily into the idea of community right now. We've got a growing Slack community. We call it the Ops community. It can be found on our website. And we have lots of really experienced DevOps engineers as well as thought leaders who are joining that. And together we're all just spending a lot of time talking about what is the future of DevOps, especially now that we factor in this real clear need for remote tools um, that are that are enabling communication collaboration within development teams. That's fantastic. 
Well, who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, or really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. I look up to a lot of the startup greats and I probably draw a little bit of inspiration from all of them. I try to not over-index on any overly too much, but even in this interview, I've probably called out, you know, a number of thoughts that, you know, stem from influence from people like Elon Musk, who says, you know, startup leaders should look at the world like through a physics mindset, start with being wrong and work towards being right. The person who's probably influenced me the most in the recent year or two would be, I think, Ben Horowitz. And it's probably a result of reading his two books. So obviously The Hard Things is a classic and and that's something that reading through his experiences and how he went through that process and came out ahead, I think we just built a really strong foundation. I also just identify with him in the way that he tries to not take himself too seriously, it would appear, and how he how he communicates with the world. But I really, really liked his um, his more recent book, The Red Book, What We Do Is Who We Are, which is about startup culture and how he goes and analyzes all these really great cultures and talks about what it means to build a great culture in a business. I think, you know, I've read all of the other business books and I subscribe to a lot of business ideology. It's actually the only category of books that I, I have any patience to read is books that would, um, you know, help me to be a, a better CEO and a better technology founder. But those are probably of recent memory, two books that I, I really, really enjoyed. And, and I think a lot of the ideology that he shares in those books are things that have influenced me a great deal. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? The answer always has to be, I wouldn't, because you really don't know where you'd be now if you did. However, if I were to look at it through a bit more of a selfish point of view, I started this business three days before my son was born. And I really did so with a lot of urgency thinking, look, I have a very little amount of time to try to create something here that will endure and, you know, legacy and all those things that, you know, some people care about. I took an approach early on of being profitable and that approach turned out, I think, to be the best approach. But the alternative approach, as I look back, is is certainly an interesting one as, as well. Um, the idea of either keeping the business small and, you know, not growing it um, was one approach that I think would have maybe potentially changed my course quite differently. I think in that scenario, I would be spending a lot more time with my son um, in his early years. And then there's the other approach, obviously, of, hey, look, let's just raise a bunch of money up front. Let's focus on product market fit from day one and let's roll the dice. Maybe we're too early in the market um, and, and maybe we're ahead of where the world is going. And in retrospect, that probably would have been true. We probably would have been a couple of years too early. And, and who knows if we would have been able to continue to raise the kind of capital we would need to sustain the business and learn at the rate that we did profitably. And in that situation, I probably had would have had a lot less time with my son. I think either way, the really motivating factor for me as I look back is how can I use the time that I have now as wisely as possible so that whether or not I'm successful at this, um, I know that I put as much as I could into it and that in the scenario where we're successful, I will have an incredible amount of opportunity invest into as much time as I need to uh, with my son and, and focus on that. I think 
what's interesting now is I've sort of found this nice balancing point, especially with coming to remote work where, um, you know, he's regularly coming into my office and playing with me while I'm working. So it's nice to now finally be in a position as I see it, where I can balance out those priorities. But when I think back, I mean, that's the one thing that keeps me up at night as I think it should anybody who works as much and as hard as, as you have to in early startup is like, how am I spending my time? And as I look back, will this rationalize for me with my personal life? And it's not really a factor of like, what's the money in it? It's more a question of like, what did I create? Was it enduring? And is that something that will provide for my family and for other people's families for enough time in the future that they will be able to pursue other things and make meaningful advancement in, the, in their personal lives? That's a great answer. I relate to a lot of that as a husband and a dad. Last question, Kyle. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They are jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world, can't wait to show it off to you, and they think it's going to solve a ton of problems. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I've been that young entrepreneur. The interesting story here is that's how I met Stuart Butterfield from Slack. I hopped on a plane and I sat down and Stuart sat next to me. The approach I took was to introduce myself. Obviously, I was very nervous. I wasn't sure if it was Stuart or not. And um, then just be tell him what I did and, and why I was excited to introduce myself. I think the next most important thing that I, I did was not bug him for the entire flight. And, um, you know, I think if I was sitting in Stuart's position, I think I would do much like he did. I would have offered an ear. I would... Um, offered some feedback, some encouragement, and and then I would have offered the opportunity to follow up to provide more feedback. I give a lot of feedback to entrepreneurs. I was just talking to one the other day who's who's raising money, which is a difficult challenge in this climate. And the approach that I I tend to take with people is maybe a bit more tough love, but usually the first piece of advice I, I will give people is again something that I, I will take from Elon Musk, which is if you need encouraging words, don't do it. But that generally what I will do for young entrepreneurs is, is give them that advice up front because I think it takes a lot of time to understand their business to give them meaningful advice. But the one thing I do know I can do if it's just a fleeting moment where I don't have the opportunity to follow up and dig in and often in the meaningful feedback is I can just identify with the journey that they're about to go on. And I think for most people, that's the most important thing that we skip over from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And it's the most important thing to get right. You know, you have to pick a business that's solving a pain point that you have in an area that you think you can be the best. Because if you were doing something you didn't love and weren't driven to do, you, it was just too hard to make it through this experience of building a company. So I tend to start with that advice of like, hey, look, are you sure you want to do this? Because I think it's important to just recognize that. And I think it's too easy these days to start a business. And so many people end up starting them. And not that that's a bad thing, but it can be a really poor use of their time if they're not completely dedicated and driven and, and really understand what they're getting into. And, you know, to call back to the prior question, I mean, that's how I think about it. Like I'm investing the first couple of years of my son's life into this. So it has to be something incredibly meaningful to me and something that can be incredibly meaningful to him and others for that to make sense. So I think that's where I would start. And then I would try to, you know, go from there and say like, okay, if you're really excited about this and this is something that you really want to talk about, let's find some time to talk about it because the details matter. And I think more than anything, what every entrepreneur needs is that 
other entrepreneur who's going to tell them the things that they're doing wrong very bluntly, or just, you know, tell them why their idea is bad very bluntly, especially early on. Because again, if you can get through all the ideas that don't work and you're just left with the ones that do. And I think that's the process that takes a lot of time and is unintuitive. And if I can accelerate that for another founder so that they're just really clear about what will work, and then there's a way that I can then enable them to accelerate that through introductions or other things that tend to be uh, the means to the end, then you can lean in a lot more and be more helpful to that person and build great relationships through you know mutual success. That's great advice. Well, Kyle, thank you for being on Code Story today. Thank you for telling the creation story of CTO.ai. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Season two episodes are co-produced and edited by Bradley Denham. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. This message is from our friends at Collard. Collard helps engineering managers, tech leads, and CTOs to build healthy teams, one-on-ones, career goals, team insights, and stakeholder communication. It's all covered in a single place. Though they aren't live yet, they are launching very soon. Visit www.collard.app slash codestory to download the 20 one-on-one mistakes and how to avoid them guide and join their waiting list. Again, that's www.collar.app slash codestory to get the guide.